Good evening. All right. I think I grew a little bit, huh? And if you guys saw the picture that Jeff sent me, uh, you would say that actually I had, was a little shorter earlier today. All right, let's pray real quick, and then we'll get started with the, the message. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your love. Thank you for what this time and season means, that you had mercy and compassion on us, Lord, that you weren't afraid to get dirty, to enter your creation. This is the first time anything like this has ever been recorded, that you, God, would send your son, who is also God in the flesh, and he would come and be one of us so that we could become children of God. We thank you, Lord, for what uh, Christmas means. We thank you that you sent your son, and we thank you that we can gather together to hear about this. And I pray, Lord, that you would convict our hearts, you would open our minds and our eyes and our ears to hear, and that we would fathom and just marvel at the amazing work that you have done, Lord, in the sending of your son and your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so I've titled the sermon, The Reason for the Incarnation. The Reason for the Incarnation. The text that we're going to be reading now is going to be Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. And this is the Apostle Paul here writing. Uh, when you get there, if you're able to stand, let us stand and we can read it together. I'll be basically just dealing with these two passages and then the theological implications of what all, all that means. So Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, it says this. But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth this son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So this highlights the, whole fo the focus of what we're going to talk about, the reason for the incarnation. You may be seated. So the main idea that I'm trying to convey in this text is that God sent this son to become human in order to make us sons. God sent his son to become one of us so that we could become sons of God. I think it was just this morning that I was looking at the, the news feed and I saw that uh, people are trying to reconfigure and redefine what the nativity scene should look like in Italy. Did you guys see that this morning? So it looks like in Italy, it seems like uh, Joseph had a change of mind or maybe something happened and so they had two moms at the nativity scene in Italy instead of Jesus and Joseph. And so it seems that everybody's trying to redefine not only Christmas pronouns, but even the historical characters that we see in our scriptures. And so this is a sad state of affairs. Along the same vein, we see many people have their own opinions of who Jesus is, right? Not too long ago, I had a discussion with one of my coworkers. And in fact, I was having a discussion with one of the Hindu doctors, and he was asking me about Jesus. And so we were talking, and one of my handy-dandy buddies like butts in, and he takes the conversation somewhere else, and he basically hears what I say about the second person of the Trinity, and then he tells me, well, according to my understanding, how I grew up and how my parents taught me this is who Jesus is and this and this. And so he gave me a wrong understanding of the Trinity. He gave me a modalistic understanding. By modalism, I mean that there is one person who acts like three different uh, titles, if you will. So, for example, I am a father. I am a husband and I am a brother. In each sense, I change the habit. It's only one person playing three parts. That's a heresy we know as modalism, which is not true. But you see what he said? According to my understanding, what I've been taught, and I asked him, have you read the scriptures, what it says about Jesus? No, but I don't need to. Well, you better read it because if you don't read it, you don't know what, what you're talking about. We find out about Jesus based on what the scriptures teach us, right? So everybody can have an opinion, but it's not going to be correct. We can't make God according to our liking. We can't conceive of Jesus according to the way we feel, according to the spirit of the age. Now, early in the church, uh, this was happening already. This is nothing new. It happened then. It's happening now. But the two fronts that the incarnation, that is, that God took up on flesh and became one of us, it was, it was uh, being attacked on two fronts. One of those was docetism, from the Greek word dokeo, to appear, and the other one was Apollinarianism. So docetism was a heresy that developed quite early on, and it basically said that Christ only appeared to be human. He wasn't really human. He only appeared to be human. So what came was this spiritual Christ that in some sense and either embodied or in, got enfleshed into the man, Jesus, who was an existing human outside, and then at the crucifixion left him. So it only appeared that he was really human, but it wasn't. That's one way. The other way is a different one. And then the second one is Apollinarianism. 
Apollinarius was from Laodicea. He was a good buddy of Athanasius, who was a hero of the faith. And he had some good stuff to say, but where he messed up was he said that Jesus, the human Jesus, didn't have a human will or mind. And why did he say that? Because he said that that is where the seed of sin resides. So he couldn't conceive of the incarnate one, the Son of God, having a human mind because the human mind is the seed of filth and sin, and surely Jesus can't do that. He can't have that. But then what you have is you don't have a truly, fully human. You have a three-parts human. He has a human body, a human soul, but he doesn't have a human mind or human will. And that's a problem. So this has been happening, like I said, since the beginning. So we want to know who the real Jesus is. We want to know who the Son sent, who the Father sent, and that's the Son. And so if you move fast forward, you see these heresies still alive today. So for example, in Islam, same thing happens. It's a form of docetism, if you will, because on the cross, Jesus didn't die, they say. God or Allah would never allow one of his prophets to die in such a manner, such a gruesome manner. Number two, he wasn't the son of God, and God can't have sons, and he's not God at all in the flesh. So on the cross, it only appeared that it was Jesus, but really, Allah confused the people and made it seem that it was like Jesus, but it was really Judas of Iscariot. But you see what the problem is here? If Islam hates Christianity and Judaism, who's responsible for Christianity? Elias, because he made it seem that it was Jesus when in fact it wasn't Jesus but Judas. You see the problem here for them? So we have that form of a modern docetism that we see. And so this is what the Apostle Paul, not with Islam, but Apostle, uh, Apostle John was dealing with early on when he's talking about that anybody who denies that the Christ really did come in the flesh uh, was of the Antichrist. So we see that this is happening early on. And if it was happening early on, we should not be surprised that it's happening now. And so we, we, we would do well to understand our doctrine and what the scriptures teach so that we don't fall victim to the heresies which are just wearing modern clothing nowadays. You also see uh, Mormons who claim that this Jesus who was sent was really uh, the spirit brother of Satan. And he was a man in the process of becoming and that he basically wasn't born by the power of the Holy Spirit, but that the Father from heaven, who used to be a man, physically consummated with Mary to create the human Jesus, who is a third kind of a God now. You see, so those are all different conceptions that we've been dealing with and that we deal with nowadays. Jehovah Witnesses say that Jesus is a created being. He is Archangel Michael. He's semi-divine. He's not God. He's like God. He's not almighty God. He's mighty God with a lowercase g. And so these problems is that if this is the case, then Jesus, that Jesus cannot save you because there can't be a third party involved in this. The transaction is between God and humanity. No third party can actually stand into place. Does that make sense? It has to be only two parties, God, the offended party, and the offenders, us. So Jesus has to be truly human, but he has to be divine, and we'll get into that here shortly. So Jesus just doesn't come from heaven to show us the way, but he is the way between man and God, the Father. So Jesus has to be truly human and truly God so that he can satisfy the debt that is owed to God. If he's not truly God and truly man, then that debt is not satisfied. That's very important. So that's why we're looking and considering the purpose of the incarnation. So if you remember when you go to the Gospels, particularly Matthew, if we want to know who Jesus is, well, we go to the Scriptures. The Father tells us who Jesus is, but Jesus himself tells us who he is. He had an understanding of who he was, what his identity was from a very young age. He told his parents that he was in his father's house. When? When they were looking for him. Remember that they had traveled and they had left and they come back looking for Jesus And they find him, but he says, where where were you? And he says, well, I was in my father's house. And so Jesus understood that God was his father early on. On another occasion, Jesus asked his disciples this question. He says, who do people say that the son of man is? It's no different then and now, like I said before. But then Jesus makes the question more specific when he asks them. And he says, but you, who do you say that I am? Right? And you remember Peter's answer, and he says, You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So upon hearing Peter's answer, Jesus gives his approval. He says, you're right. And you didn't figure this out on your own. My father in heaven revealed this to you. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one of Israel, the one who was to be king, 
prophet and, king, uh, prophet and priest forever, the Son of God. Now, it's interesting to note that the Jews of Jesus' time were waiting for a Messiah. But Peter's response is interesting, too, because if you hear what he said, he said that the Messiah, that he is the Messiah and the Son of God. And this also is affirmed by the high priest. It almost seems like they would understand, or at least they should have known, that the Messiah would be the Son of God. Because remember in Mark, when Jesus is before the high priest, and the high priest asks him, tell us if you're the Son of the Blessed One. And Jesus says, I am. And you shall see him coming in the clouds of heaven at the right hand of the Father, and almighty majesty. Remember that? And he tears open his, his robe, saying that he's committed blasphemy. He would have committed blasphemy if he wasn't the Son of God. But he is the Son of God, so he doesn't commit blasphemy. Right? So it seems that they understood that the Son of God and the Messiah would be synonymous. At least that's what it seems like. So this evening, again, I want to talk about who the Son is. But we must first talk about the incarnation in order to understand who the Son is, and what the purpose of His coming was for. So in order to do that, let's begin in Galatians 4, 4. And here we read, I'm going to divide this into sections, but it says here, but when the fullness of time had come. So when the fullness of time had come. So here we can say a few things. In the context of what the Apostle Paul said a few verses ago, in verse 2, we understand that the fullness of time refers to a time that the Father had appointed. In verse 2, it tells us that the Father appointed a particular time, and that would be the time when the fullness of time had been completed. It was the time that was according to the Father's good pleasure. It is a time before the completion that was marked by being under the law. Paul tells us that those to whom the promise came, those who were predestined to be heirs with Christ, were in a sense no different than a slave until the age, the coming of age came, or more precisely, when the fullness of time had come. So with the fulfillment of this time, the promise, the gospel preached to Abraham that all nations would be blessed in him it would finally become a reality or the process would start with the coming of the son. The same offspring promised to Abraham is the one that God had told the serpent and Eve in the garden that would crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3.15. So we can see how God has been orchestrating history in order to prepare the sending and the arrival of the son. God works like this. Just think about it. He created the universe, and then when everything was ready, who did he bring last? Humanity. He prepared everything for the arrival of humanity. In this case, the fullness of time, it's almost as if you will re- re- reenact it again. He's preparing, he's orchestrating the events in history, at least right here from a, from a historical Hebrew perspective according to the covenants and the promises made to Abraham. He's orchestrating everything so that when the time comes, the sun is set to do what he needs to do. And so we see here that God had preached the gospel to Abraham. He had provided the Jews with the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, essentially his moral law. And we know that the Mosaic Law was not in contradiction or in opposition to the Abrahamic Law, right? Because what God promises, he will carry through. It doesn't nullify the previous command made to Abraham. And then we see that this leading up to the Mosaic Law leads up to the new covenant that we see in Jeremiah chapter 31, all of this pointing to Jesus, right? From the garden, that the one who would crush the head of the, the serpent would come, right? He would be born of her seed. We see the promise given to Abraham that through you many nations will be blessed. We see it through the Mosaic covenant that this is the holiness and proper way of God and that we're supposed to be holy and righteous as God is, but we can't save ourselves or justify ourselves by following the law. Number one, we can't. Number two, that's what we're supposed to do, so you can't get brownie points for following it, but you couldn't do it anyways because you fail. But it pointed to Jesus, and then finally in the new covenant, we see that it's pointing to Jesus, and we'll see how that culminates. So as we think of the second aspect, we see that connected with the covenants in Israel. Now we see kind of the historical background. We see that Paul lived in an interesting time period. He was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, born a Roman citizen in Tarsus. So we see a few things. We see Judaism here, we see Hellenism here, and we see Rome. His world was heavily influenced by the Greek culture, Greek language, Greek philosophy, and pagan uh, Greek religions, all the while living under the power of the Roman Empire. It was Alexander the Great who had the goal of uniting the entire known world at his time, at least what he had conquered, with Hellenism, that is, Greek language, Greek thought, Greek philosophy, Combining it all together, that set the stage because, as we will see, 
the Jews were using a particular translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint or Septuagint. That was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that's the Bible that is likely that was used by Jesus and all the other apostles at that time. So this sets the stage. And then during this time, the Roman Empire exercised control over the region, right? It introduced its legal system. It paved the roads with cobblestones. This was the first time that we had a full system of, of, of roads that made travel more efficient and safer. And then mail correspondence could be making it quicker to its designated spot. People were not as much in danger because of the different Roman colonies. This is said by some that made, it, made the gospel spread like wildfire because, as they said in Rome, all roads led to Rome. And in this case, we will see that how Paul, the apostle, is able to speak into Rome and even in the praetorium, and we see people within Caesar's household believing the gospel is coming in. So the fullness of time, God is orchestrating these different things happening in Hellenism, in the Roman world, in order that we would see the fullness of time. And interestingly enough, too, the emperors considered themselves to be sons of God or representatives of God. They were self-proclaimed saviors. If you looked at some Roman coins, it would say son of God. It would say the savior of the world. Well, guess what? Jesus also claimed to be what? The son of God, the savior of the world. When Roman emperors were coming or sending messages, they would send an euangelion, a good news message. Guess what? The scriptures were speaking about Jesus sending the good news, bringing he is the good news, right, to a world that is broken. So we see, we see Jesus being the true son of God, the ontological son of God. We see him being the one through whom the promise came. We see him being the savior of the world. We see him is the one of whom the message speaks about. And now you have this political system. So you can see how this would have been to some a threat politically speaking. Right? On the Jewish side, we see that they crucified him for claiming to be God. They, they acknowledge this. But then you see on this side too that he was a king. And that he was proclaiming to be the son of, the, the son of God and the savior of the world. And then even too, this is interesting too, during this time, the Romans had mastered crucifixions. The Phoenicians had introduced crucifixion, but the Romans had become masters of this gruesome form of death. And Jesus comes at the right time when everything is lining up and crucifixion is there so that he would be hung at the city gates for everybody to see him naked and ashamed in the form of a slave when he wasn't a slave. So you see how everything is being orchestrated. God himself made it that he would send us in when the fullness of time had come. So as I was stating right now, these are two ways in which we can understand the fullness of time coming to its completion and ushering in the way for the son to be sent. So having been under the law until the time mark of the old age, now with the advent of Christ, the new age of redemption had dawned. This was the purpose for the incarnation. The next clause that we see here, we said when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So as we discovered, the fullness of time was appointed by the Father, and the Father in his infinite knowledge, sovereignty, and grace prepared the stage for the completion of the time, and this was now the time to send the Son. So thus we read in verse 4, in the next clause, God sent forth his Son. Now a few things to consider here. We're going to consider first the verb sent, and then we're going to consider his Son. We see that God sent. So we should ask, sent who and sent from where? This is important, sent who and sent from where? Obviously, we know the answer, it's simple, but let's, let's dig into it a little bit deeper. The answer to the first question is found in the text when it says that God sent his son, okay? Where did the son come from? Well, we know he came from heaven, but where was he? Well, in John 1.1, we get a glimpse. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word is Jesus pre-incarnate before he became one of us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So we see three things. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So how do we make sense of these three things? The scriptures tell us that the son, the word, already existed when God created the universe. In fact, it tells us that it was through the word that the world was created and everything else that has been created. And nothing that has been created was everything was created by the word. So the word already existed when the universe began to exist or was created. You with me? So the word was already there. So that points to his pre-existence. He was not created. He was the creator. 
Next, it tells us that the word was with the Father. Now, the word already existed, and the word was with the Father. So now we see some type of proximity, some type of closeness here. In John 1.18, it tells us this, that the Son was in the bosom of the Father, or next to the Father. In theology, this is called perichoresis. It simply means mutual indwelling. That is to say that the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, are so connected in such a way that they mutually indwell one another. They don't mix to make a third type of a thing, but they're so connected by virtue of their, their divinity, their nature, that wherever one is, the other three are there. Now, Scripture may attribute, for example, creation to one person primarily, let's say the Son, but then the Father is also said to have been creator. And the Holy Spirit is also said to have been present there. Think about, for example, the, the notion of salvation. When you have salvation, the three persons are always working together. The Father is the one who sends the Son. The Son is the sent one who is the one who accomplishes salvation. And the Holy Spirit is the one who applies that salvation and unites us to Christ. All three persons are working for that one work together. So there's a mutual indwelling where they're connected in such a way that they're together but they can't be divided, they can't be separated, but they're united because of their divine nature. So the son was in the bosom of the father. We see that the son and the father have existed from all eternity. This notion of being next to or coming from the father is the way that the son and the father and the spirit relate to one another in eternity. There's this idea of what we call the divine life in God, and then there's the economy, which basically is how God works in history and the life of God inside himself in the Trinity. This is what we're talking about here. The Son eternally comes from the Father. The Son is eternally sent by the Father. And the way he is being sent and coming from the Father in all eternity is the way he is sent into history. And it makes sense that the Son would be sent and not the Father because the Son is the one who's coming and proceeding from the Father. I know it sounds like a theology lesson, but bear with me, okay? I know it sounds a little bit uh, monotonous, but just bear with me. So the Son is continually coming from the Father and is sent out into the world. So the life of God in himself is the prototype for missions for us. In the way the Son was sent, the disciples and we are sent as well. That is the prototype for missions. The way the Father sends the Son and the Spirit is the way that you and I are sent as well. And that's why Jesus tells the disciples, in the way uh, as I was sent, I send you. And then he sends the Spirit to them. And the Spirit goes out and fortifies them and encourages them to do what they need to do. That is to evangelize. So the Son is continually coming from the Father and is sent out into the world. This is why the Son is sent and not the Father. And so thus, the Son is with the Father in heaven. Now, if we pay attention, if the Son existed before the creation of the universe and was in the bosom of the Father in heaven... Then it follows that the Son is preexistent. We said that already. So if he's preexistent, it also presupposes that he is divine because only that which is divine can preexist, never having begun to exist, but always existed. That's a hard thing to consider, that God never had a beginning. He always is. He always has been there. It is only created things that are dependent and contingent. They depend on something else for their existence, but God doesn't. God owes his existence to nothing except himself. He is who he is. He just is. And that shows you the amazing power of God, that he never began to exist, but he's always been there. Now, another thing that that is fascinating here is that he's called Father. Because God is perfect, he's always been Father. There never was a time when he wasn't Father, and there never was a time when he didn't have a son. Do you see? Because God is perfect and lacking in nothing, He always was father from all eternity, and there never was a point in time, and even before time, because, you know, time began to exist when energy, matter, and space were created. He was always the father to the son, and the son was always son to the father. That's just a mystery we're going to have to deal with. The scripture gives us that information. We can't fully comprehend it, but we have enough information in the scriptures to tell us this is how it works. If God were to become at a certain point God, I'm sorry, if God were to become father at a certain point in time, then he wouldn't be perfect. I was, my brother-in-law and I were talking today, and we were talking about that we became fathers the moment our children were conceived. Before that, we weren't fathers. There's a point in time when we become fathers, and when our children become our children. 
But that's not the case with God. Because he's perfect, because he's lacking in nothing, he's always been father and son. And therefore, the father, the son, and the spirit have been in an eternal relationship with one another, sharing the same divine nature. And so, God has existed from all eternity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one God. The Father never began to be Father because He's always been Father to the Son. So now, when we read in John 1.1 when it says, and the, and, the, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, so how do we make sense of this? So we see here that the Word was with God, and we said that the Word is Jesus before He became flesh, so He can be with God because He's with God the Father. So he's with God because God the Son is with the Father. But he's also God. He's not the Father. Do you see the, the third clause? It would seem like it's a contradiction. He says, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. But he's not saying he is the Father. It's essentially saying he is of the same stuff, nature of the Father. They're both divine. So then that helps us understand that the Son is preexistent. He's divine. He's with the Father. He's next to the Father, in the Father's bosom. And he's coming from the Father, and yet he is God as well. Are you guys with me? We can talk afterwards because I know this gets kind of crazy. So he's with the Father. So there is no contradiction. If somebody tells you there's a contradiction, there's no contradiction. The Son is with the Father. And the Son is God. But the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son. So let me see if I can help us understand this a little bit more. We... Anything that begins to exist has a cause, right? And we talked about how we as, as parents become parents when we have children. And what we create and beget is the same nature as us. If a human has a child, that child would be human. If a dog has puppies, those dogs are of the same nature as puppies, right? If a giraffe has babies, the baby will be giraffe. It's the same logic that applies to God. If God were to have a son the son would have to be divine as well because he's of the same nature. He's not created, he's begotten. Begotten refers to offspring. But the part that kind of trips us out is that God himself never began to exist, but he has a son. And normally we associate sonship with beginning and fatherhood with beginning, but in God there's no beginning and there's no end. So there is a way to see that he's God, he's perfect, he's father and he's son, but he never began to be father and son. He's always been father and son. But for us, it's a little bit different. Now, I'll move away from that now. But I wanted to show us this, that the son who was sent is the son of God. But this son of God is not just the son of God. He's the son of God, which presupposes that he has always existed and that he's divine. And this is going to be very important for the incarnation. So that Jesus is divine and shares in the divine nature is exactly what the Jews understood. Now, think about this. The Jews understood this. We sometimes have a difficulty understanding this because we say Jesus didn't say I'm God. Well, the Jews understood it, so we should go back and see. Listen, it says, Jesus says to the Jews, my father is working until now and I am working. So it's upon this statement that they wanted to kill him for they argued because he was calling God his own father and doing what? And making himself equal with God. The fact that he called God his father, they understood he was making a claim to divinity. Do you see that? They understood that, and we should understand the same thing. So this is one line when you deal with your friendly Jehovah Witness that comes to your door and says, no, he never claimed to be God. Well, he did. Look, this is one portion. There's many others. But the Jews understood this, and so this is not hard to understand. It's right there, okay? So he gives us that understanding. So making himself equal with God meant that he was saying that he and the Father were both divine. Additionally, as where he takes the prerogatives that only belong to God. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is claiming to be able to forgive sins. He's working on the Sabbath, but only the Father can work on the Sabbath and heal on the Sabbath. So he's taking prerogatives that belong to God. If we go fast forward and we look at, well, actually not fast forward, if we go backward into the Old Testament in Isaiah, it says this, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Now listen to those two. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And concerning the son, the government shall be upon his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. It's that second clause that we want to look at. A son will be given to us. This, in a theological way, is pointing back to the son being given. When it says in the, God sent forth his son, he's sending the son who preexisted always in eternity. The child to be born is focusing on the incarnation. 
So the child will be born. The son was given because the son eternally existed. And so we see here that the scriptures tell us that the son is not only the son of God, but he's also the son of God and he's also God. This son here is called mighty God. You see, and this is not a title that is just given to a human. It's given to God. The son is called mighty God and the son given is the son of God. This is why angel Gabriel told Mary and Joseph that the child in her womb is the son of the most high and that he would be named Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And then elsewhere, he tells us too in Matthew that they will have to name him Jesus or Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves, God saves. So why is it important that the son be sent? Simply because salvation can only be accomplished by the son. He is a sent one, and he has to be the one who accomplishes salvation. But not only that, because he's a son and preexistent, he's divine. Only God can forgive. The transgression and sin has been committed against God. It is only God who can forgive and bear the burden. Jesus is not Archangel Michael, as J.W. say. He's not God's first creation. Again, I said before, a third party, an angel, cannot forgive sins. The sin is committed against God, and therefore, the sin has to be borne by God. Does that make sense? And a human example of this would be this. Let's say that I told my wife, Amanda, those cookies suck. They're actually really good. But let's say that I told her her cookies suck, right? That they're terrible. And then I said, you're the worst cook in the world. She's not. But let's say I said that. That was rude and wrong, right? If I were to say that, who has to forgive me if I ask for forgiveness? Can I go to my mother-in-law? Can she forgive me? Can Micah, my son, forgive me? Nobody can forgive me because I've committed a, a crime or a sin against my wife. I mistreated her. I disrespected her. So I, the offending party, must go to the offendee or the offended and ask her for forgiveness. Forgiveness means that you withhold judgment and choose to bear the burden and the pain of that sin and to squash it and say, I no longer, forgive, I no longer hold it against you. I forgive you. That is why no third party can be a part of this. It has to be that it is God who forgives. Jesus cannot be an angel or a third party. He has to be one of both of these. And this is why it's so important that the incarnation is what we celebrate. Because it is only God can forgive. That's why the son was sent. Right? He's the one who has to forgive. And, and we'll move on to the next section here where he has to be truly human too. See, the angel, I said, is a third party. He can't forgive us. This is why it says Emmanuel God is with us because he is Yeshua and Yeshua alone or Yahweh alone can forgive sins. So why send the son? Well, we've discussed that he is the son of God, co-eternal with the father and the spirit and that if he were not God, he could not save us. Not only would he be divine in nature, but the son of God would also have to be born like one of us as a human, yet without sin, a lamb without blemish. So not only is he the son of God, but as we will see in the next section, he is also the son of Mary. So the next section in Galatians, we read first, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the son born of a woman. Now that brings us to this next section. The apostle tells us that the son sent was born of a woman. The son that was sent would be born as a human. He would be born as one of us. So generally speaking, this points us back to the garden of to the garden when God told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. You see, it's pointing to her offspring. This is the gospel first preached in the garden, talking about what God was going to do in the future. He says, he shall bruise or crush your head. He's talking to the serpent. And you shall bruise his heel. The one to bruise the head of the serpent would be one that is an offspring of Eve or of woman, mankind. So the apostle validates this understanding of Genesis 3.15, that is the Apostle Paul in Romans 16.20, when he says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your foot. Now this can have present tense implications and future tense implications in eschatology, but we can see that it is a cross-reference here pointing to the fact that Paul acknowledges that this is the case here, that the one who was born of woman would be the one who would crush the head of the serpent. So that the eternal son was in the father's bosom was sent as seen in John 1.14, right? There we read this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this son that was sent became one of us. He tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent, literally what it says. He became one of us to accomplish a mission. In an unprecedented way, God enters his creation. 
And not only does the second person of the Trinity enter his creation, but he partakes in human nature. Elsewhere, Paul tells us that Christ Jesus existed in the form of God. He assumed the form of a servant by taking on humanity and came as a man. This is in Philippians chapter 2. So we see what God is promising. We see this from the Apostle John, and we also see this from the Apostle Paul, telling us that this Jesus who came is nonetheless the Son of God, and he came to be one of us. This is supposed to fulfill what was said by the prophet Isaiah. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Obviously, this was talking to Ahaz. But in this case, we see a future fulfillment where the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we read what that means. God is with us. So it's important to note that Jesus doesn't become a son when he's born. That's very important because some will say, well, that's when he became a son. No, we already said he's been the son because he has an eternal father. He's always been son. So he doesn't become a son when he is born of Mary. He does become her son, and he does become the son of Joseph who adopts him. But he's already been a son. So he becomes the son of Mary, but he's always been the son of God. So it's proper to call Mary his mother. The son was born of a woman. The son who was with the father was sent and was born of woman, Mary, the mother of Jesus. So it's important that we understand it is simply not, that, not just that he was born of a woman, but that it is from Mary that he obtains his human nature. See, so he was born of woman, right? He came, he came to be born, and yet he was, he was born of Mary, but this is how he takes on his human nature. It's not just created out of thin air, but it is out of Mary from which he gets his human nature. And that is why he doesn't have a human father, because the eternal father is the one who is his father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is able to conceive and marry. Just think of the beauty of how God himself in the beginning in Genesis says, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be this, and there was that. Or he opens the womb of Sarah, and she has a baby in old age. If God can do those things, imagine just the power of God to be able to just conceive in her with no physical action as the Mormon ideology teaches that God himself had to come down in order to consummate to have a child, that is a deficient God that it is a human God, which is not really a God. That is a human convention. But God himself in his power and his majesty does the impossible because all things are possible with God. And so the son who eternally existed comes and takes on a human nature. This is important because in the letter to the Hebrews, we read the following. He says, since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all of those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So he had to be made a human like you and I in every respect, contra Apollinarius. If Jesus was going to be truly human, he needed a human body, a human soul, human spirit, human mind, human will. As an old, uh, I believe it's Gregory of... Uh, Nicaea said, whatever is not assumed is not healed. If Jesus takes on human nature, he has to take on the entirety of what it means to be a human, basically and properly, minus sin. Why? Because sin is not a property of humanity. It is something that is a defect after the fall. It's what we call an accident in philosophy. But to be a human doesn't mean to be a sinner, but it does mean to be a sinner after the fall. To be a human is to be like Adam. And hence why Jesus comes without blemish. Because he starts where Adam started again, without sin. But he's so empowered by the Holy Spirit that he will not succumb to sin. You see? And that is what awaits us in the glorification, that we will never succumb to sin either. So thus, he is not God in a bod. And if you ever hear an illustration of uh, Jesus being like Iron Man, that's wrong. So it's not, you know, God in a bod like that. That's wrong too. So Iron Man illustration of Christology is wrong, so don't repeat that one, okay? If you do, we'll talk later in the alley. I'm just kidding. We won't go in the alley. We'll go in the light. But don't do that one, okay? So that's not a good one. So Apollinarius is God in a bod is wrong. So if you ever hear anybody say God in a bod, just think of Apollinarius. That's bad, so don't repeat that. He's truly human in every way, and he remained divine. Now, here's something interesting to consider. 
We have to understand that becoming, God is not in the state of becoming anything. He just is. God can't become something because if he were becoming, he would be deficient again and not perfect. So when he becomes a human, it doesn't mean that he morphs from his divinity into a human being. No, he is eternally divine and takes upon a human nature. So he doesn't cease to be who he is, God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, but he does add a human nature to himself on this side of eternity. You see? So when he becomes a human, he doesn't cease to be what he was. He continues to be what he, who he is, divine, the second person of the Trinity, but now he has a human nature. And now and forevermore, he is the God-man and continues to have that human nature as a faithful representative of humanity because Jesus is true humanity. He is perfect humanity. He is a prototype for humanity. And now when we get to see him face to face, we will see him as we are, a resurrected being, but with a body forever, which is amazing that that's the first thing. Jesus' destiny is our destiny. We will be resurrected. We will have a body like that, but we will be empowered by the Spirit. But you see that Jesus shares in our humanity. He just didn't come to appear and then leave it. He keeps it because he's become one with his creation in a non-Hinduistic, pantheistic way where God so loved the world that he came and gave his son to become one of us for the greater purpose of bringing us up to make us his sons, which is an amazing and fantastic gift that the message of Christmas brings. So, as I said, he assumes a full human nature without ceasing to be who he was. He has to be a lamb without blemish, hence no sin, because the sacrifice needed to be without stain. So the son was truly human except sin. Thus, the sacrifice needed to be effective. Therefore, Jesus needed to be truly human. So now, as we've just finished talking about Jesus being the son of Mary, sharing in our humanity, It's important that Jesus be the son of Mary, truly human, because it is humanity that must pay. Think about that. He has to be truly human, not only because of shedding of blood, without it, there's no forgiveness of sin, but again, the offending party must make restitution. And no mere human can make restitution because we're sinners. It has to be God because he's the offended party and he has to forgive, but God can't die. So therefore, he has to be truly human to pay for the sins of humanity, to represent us, because all in Adam shall die, but all in Christ shall live. And therefore, anybody united to the Son has life. Those not united to the Son do not have life. So Jesus has to be human because a human has to pay. If Jesus were not truly human, then he could not be the second Adam, and therefore he would not pay for our sins and couldn't, which means that we would still be paying for our sins, right? I mean, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul tells us that if Christ didn't rise again, we're still in our sins. Same thing here. If Christ is not truly human, we're still in our sins. So who's paying in hell forever? We are. So if Jesus is not truly God, and if he's not truly human, then we're stuck paying for our sins forever. If Jesus does not rise from the dead, he's not fulfilling the promises, then we're still in our sins. And guess what? We're still hell bound paying for our sins forever because that's what we deserve, right? But God out of mercy sends the Son out of love. So now let's briefly highlight how Jesus is truly God and truly man and why that matters. So truly God, truly man, the God-man. So that Jesus is truly God and truly man has been understood as this technical term called the hypostatic union, hypostatic union or hypostasis. It was Cyril of Alexandria, one of the early church fathers, in Alexander, who coined the term to describe Jesus' dual natures in one person. In other words, the one person, the second person of the, the Trinity, the Son, that one person has a divine and human nature. He is unique and there's nobody like him. The hypostatic union, hypostasis, came to be used later on as a word to mean person. He is one person with two natures united. And again, like I said, this is very important because Jesus is not two persons. That would be the heresy of Nestorianism, which separates Christ and humanity. So we have two Jesuses. That's wrong. He's the one person who's always existed and is divine, comes and takes on a human form and a human body and becomes one of us. And therefore, he has to be that way or else it won't work. He has to be the God-man who is one person sharing two natures. So the incarnation, God the Son entered our world and added a new nature to himself and he became what he wasn't, that is human, but he never ceases to be what he is, the second person of the Trinity. 
So like I said a while ago, if Jesus is not God, and I'm saying this again because I want to drive this point, if Jesus is not God, salvation cannot be accomplished. In the same way, if Jesus is not truly and fully human, he cannot die in your place and my place. So Adam represents humanity, and in Adam all stand condemned. So being that Jesus is the second Adam, he represents all those he will save. Thus, the one who pays for human sins must be human in the full sense of the term of what it means to be human. So, again, he has to be human. He has to be God. This is why the writer of Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God can't bleed. God can't die. So, therefore, he must be human as well. Now, in the Council of Chalcedon in 451, the church convened. There was a lot of these heresies going on, these wrong teachings, these wrong ideologies going around about who the son was and how do we properly speak about the son. This is what they wrote. These were basically the guardrails of how to speak about Jesus so that we don't commit the errors that they committed in the past. And they said this, We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son. How many sons? One Son. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same, perfect in Godhead and also perfect in humanity. So one person, the Son of God, perfect in humanity, perfect in divinity. Truly God, truly man, of a rational soul and body. Coessential, meaning to say of the same nature, of the same stuff with the Father according to his divinity or Godhead. And also consubstantial, that is, the same nature with us according to his humanity. In all things like us, without sin, begotten before the ages of the Father according to the Godhead. In these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, not, not the mother of God proper, but the mother of Jesus, who is God. Therefore, you can call her the mother of God in that sense. According to his manhood. See, she's the mother of God according to his manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged. And here is the crux of what he says. In two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union. That's a mouthful. But essentially, there's four parts. You can't confuse the natures, meaning to say the human nature and the divine nature must remain separate but united. They can't be mixed together. So, for example, what do you get when you mix grape juice and apple juice? You get grapple juice. Tastes pretty good, too, especially if you put Sprite in there. It's like a sparkling Martinelli's. But you get a third type of a thing, right? It's not fully apple juice. It's not fully grape juice. It's grapple juice. And add the Sprite, it's really good. And then you have a third type of a thing, a bubbly kind of a thing, you know? So that's the problem. You don't confuse the natures. You have to maintain the human nature completely human and the divine nature completely divine. This is very important for, for the incarnation to be effective for us. Then they don't change. He doesn't become God or is not God and then changes from his divinity and loses his divinity and becomes human completely. That's also a problem. That's why they're safeguarding it. You can't speak about Christ like that in his natures. So there's no confusion, mixing. There's no change. He doesn't morph into something else. There's no division, right? They're united in such a way that they're connected, but they retain their properties in such a way that it's, it's just present. They both are present with each other, and they're not separated. You can't separate the natures because then what's holding them together? Because this is the one person who subsists, who exists as a human and in divine. Now, there's a, we, I think uh, Pastor Stephen and Pastor, uh, Brian also taught a class on this. These funky terms are called enhypostasis and hypostasis. We can talk about that afterwards. But basically, those are very important terms to understand. There's only one person in the, in, 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 in the nature of, of who Jesus is, the eternal son. For you and I, we're one person, one human, right? For him, he's one person who exists as human and divine. That's the difference. And there's no problem with that because it is the son who came down and was given. So these four words that I mentioned, separation, division, without change, and confusion, are very important because they concern the natures. They are without confusion and change because this is the guardrail so that we don't fall into heresy because there were heresies that mentioned this. So then what we get from this is that we can speak about Jesus as one person with two natures. Truly God, truly man. This is what we call the Chalcedonian box. He is one person, two natures, 
truly God, truly man. If you speak of God, you have to speak along these guardrails. If you go outside this, then you're going into the realm of heresy. And so that's a problem right there. And so this is why we talk about the hypostatic union, that this is what is necessary, that Jesus is truly divine and truly human, and to properly speak about this union of personhood so that we don't commit the errors of the past while speaking about Jesus, and so that we can identify the errors when we're speaking to our friends who are Muslims, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, and so on, and even oneness Pentecostals. So if anything, you know, we're seeing that the gift that God gave us is his son, and we're going to see what the purpose of this was, but at least we can have some tools to be able to dialogue with them and not be um, quiet or afraid to engage with them just because they disagree. So for salvation to work, Jesus has to be truly God, truly man, one person in two natures. And now we move on to the reason for taking on flesh. And it says that in the next uh, verse here, in verse 5, it says the Apostle Paul tells us that he was born of a woman in order to do what? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And there it is. When we preach the gospel, we talk about normally God will save you if you repent and believe and trust in him, right? He does save you from the consequence of hell, from the consequence of your sins, from the wrath of God. That is all scripture and that is all true. But because we're Protestants, we run with justification and we stop there. You're declared righteous. That's it. You're no longer a sinner. You're no longer condemned. In Christ, you've been set free. You're forgiven. The judge has declared you righteous. You have the alien righteousness of Christ. But then the next part that here he tells us is that the highest privilege of the gospel is not just to be forgiven, but it is to have intimacy with the Father, that you can call him your Father. That is a wonderful gift. So the gift of Christmas is that the Father sent the Son to die in your place and my place to forgive us of our sins. For what? So that we could become sons of God. And the Apostle John says in his epistle, and this is what we are. We are children of God. This is a fantastic news that God the Father would send his son, lower him down to bring us up to sonship. This is a great gift because in the inheritance you get the son, you get the father, you get the spirit, you get to be a son, you get to reign with him, and God is the greatest inheritance of all because apart from Christ and being united to Christ, there's no salvation. So it's not just about salvation. It is being saved. But it is about having God as your father. He will never leave you, nor forsake you, nor abandon you. He is there for you. He loves you, and therefore he did what he did because of his great love. So it tells us that he came to redeem those under the law. Who was under the law? All of us. In Adam, right? When the law came, all of us, the law and sin took effect. And so Jesus was born not only as a human, but as a Jewish man who had to be under God's law. See, Jesus' greatest sermon, he told us that he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law, that is, to do everything that the law commanded. We were supposed to do everything that God commanded. Adam was supposed to do it, he failed. The Jewish nation failed. The Jewish leaders failed. But Jesus came to do what we couldn't do. And now that he does it, he actively obeys the Father. He undergoes, he was born under the law because he was born under a woman in order to pay for us, right? The Mosaic law pointed, like I said a while ago, to God's holiness but it also pointed to the fact that nobody's able to keep it. I remember hearing somebody said that the law is a good mirror. It tells you that your face is dirty, but you don't go to the mirror to clean your face. It only points you to Jesus, to the one who can clean you. And so that's what the law was, a schoolmaster pointing us to Jesus. So if Jesus here, we see that it is only Jesus by his active obedience, that is, he willfully chooses to submit and obey the Father in everything. Therefore, he fulfills the demands of the law for us. Likewise, he was without sin, and therefore he didn't need to die. It is only those who sin should die, right? For the wages of sin is death. He had never committed sin, therefore he didn't need to die. But he chose to die in your place and my place. That's what we call the passive obedience, where he chooses to take your place. We were cursed under the law. And what does the scripture say? That he became a curse for us. And he took upon that, and he hung on a tree as if he were a cursed man. And so you see, he came as a man under the law to redeem us under the law. So he took our place on a tree, and it says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So he takes our place, and then Paul tells us this in 1, 7 of Ephesians. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. You see, he redeemed us from the curse of the law by shedding his blood. 
This is important because remember in chapter 2 of Ephesians, chapter 2 verse 3, Paul tells us that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were to be the recipients of God's wrath. But then it says this, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though when we were dead in sins. We were supposed to receive the wrath of God, but because of God's mercy, because he withheld what we deserved, he gave us his son, he made us alive, he gave, made us born again. And having been made born again, now you can express faith in God. And now when you have expressed faith in God, Scripture tells us that all those who have faith in Christ are sons of God in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. All of those who profess faith in Christ are sons of God. You see the gift? This is why Jesus came. We are saved by grace. It is a gift of God. It is out of his infinite riches and love that he overflows his love unto the beloved. He doesn't need it. We need it. And because he is a fountain of love, he pours that out into us, gives us what we don't deserve so that we may enjoy him forever, now and forevermore. And this is made even more evident when we read what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. He says, God predestined us to adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will. You see, this adoption, which Paul talks about happening in eternal past, or not happening, but the predestining, the choosing and electing of what's going to happen, God predestines us to salvation, to adoption as sons, but this only happens through the redemption, through the shedding of Jesus Christ, the blood. So as we can see, the purpose of the incarnation, the incarnation is the first step in the nine saving events of Christ. The incarnation doesn't save in and of itself, but it is this process by which we get to where Christ is going to actively obey, passively die, rise again, ascend, sit, send the Spirit, resurrect us, glorify us. That is the beginning of everything. So when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That is salvation, sonship, family, father, the father that you and I never had, or the father that we had, but that heavenly father is much better. He will never leave you nor forsake you. That the father gave us his son to redeem us and reconcile us to himself in order to be adopted as sons is the final portion of what the message of Christmas brings about. It is the greatest gift of the gospel. Right in John 1, chapter 12, verse 13, the apostle John tells us that God gave us the right, the privilege to become sons of God. He gave us the privilege to become sons of God. Not everybody's a son of God. Not everybody's getting saved. It is only those who are united to Christ, only those who have expressed faith in him, only those who have been made born again, only those who are sons of God, who have the spirit, who shall be saved. So in the same way that Jesus, being the eternal son of God, never changed and never ceased to be who he was, he added a new nature to himself, he added himself humanity, we too, without ceasing to be humans, made an image of God, become or will become what we aren't or what we weren't, sons of God, awaiting the manifestation of our glorification that is our resurrected bodies in the end. So the message of Christmas is that he, the Father, sent the Son to become one of us, to redeem us from the curse of the law, to do what we couldn't do, so that you and I might become sons and daughters of the living God and have peace and reign with him, provided we suffer with him and we will be glorified with him. But this is the beauty of what the gospel is. The Son of God became man that man may become a son of God. So I want to close with this, um, this, this uh, tune from 1865 written by William C. Dix. It's, it's, what child is this? But I want you to hear just the words of the hymn. It says, what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet in anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? This, this, Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing, Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christians fear for sinners hear the silent word is pleading. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross he bore for me and for you. Hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. So bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come peasant king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. 
Let loving hearts enthrone him. Raise, raise a song on high. The virgin sings her lullaby. Joy, joy, for Christ is born, the babe, the son of Mary. The child is the son of God, the son of Mary, the God-man, the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior who came to show us the Father, to redeem and reconcile us that we might become sons of God. And so as we come to a close and we consider uh, what we have heard, I want to just maybe give you some questions and things to consider. Two questions for believers might be, what are we going to do with this gift and how are we to live in light of this message of the incarnation? Well, one thing would be that we would not take for granted the message of Christmas, that we would constantly remember what great stakes the Father took to save us, undeserving sinners, to give us what we don't deserve, such grace, mercy, love, and compassion to crown us with the highest privilege that we could ever be, ever imagined that we could become sons of God. This is an awesome power. So think of God's glory, God's amazing power, his mercy, his love, that we should see how awesome the gift that God has given us in his son. Two, that we would meditate daily on the purpose of the incarnation. And as we do, all the problems that we have pale in comparison to the great gift we've been given. Because it's so easy to lose sight when we're focusing on our pain, our problems, what we don't have, how we wish things were different, but it is what it is, right? We come to God and we give him our heart. We bring everything to the feet of Jesus. But just remember what he has done. He made the first move. He reconciled himself to us. We didn't make the first move. We weren't. We couldn't. We wouldn't. We hated God. But God made the first move. So think about how great that gift is that it pales into comparison to anything that we're going through. And if we can't keep our eyes on him, it's because we're focusing on the problems too much and not allowing God to help us see life through his eyes. Next thing I would be is that I would hope that we are ready to identify the wrong Jesus when we're confronted with the wrong Jesus. When you're talking to some friends, that'd be the Mormons, Muslim, Jehovah Witnesses, one is Pentecostal, whoever it is, you know that you would engage in love, not in a condescending, arrogant way, but that you would acknowledge and be able to identify the counterfeit and be able to have your faith strengthened because you know who Jesus is, you know who he, what he came for and what he's done, and that you would be able to share this message with them because they need it, right? And along the line of the next one is that we have been given such a great gift that we dare not keep it to ourselves. Too much has been given, much will be demanded and required. You and I have been given a great gift, and so therefore we must share this gift. Who cares if we're not prepared to answer all the questions? We're not called to answer all the questions. We're called to testify, to give a testimony. Not my testimony. I'm supposed to give the testimony of who the one who came. My story is just nothing compared to what Jesus has done and the testimony of the evangelist. That's the message that you have to give, right? Later, you can talk about how God changed you. That's good. But what's important, of utmost important is, what is this message? What is this great gift that God has given you? And therefore, go and share it with others that it may grow and expand. That's why we're sending missionaries to... Uh, all over the world, we're giving money for that, right? And so you too, in your own sphere, in your work, in your family, spread the word, not only by your way you speak, but by the way you act towards your children, through your spouses, through your family, mom, dad, friends, people who you consider enemies. Live in an incarnational way that he who considered what was considered a form of God did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he himself condescended to be one of us. So don't think of yourself higher than you should, but think of others better than you so that you can go and meet their needs and meet them where they are. So let us have the mind of Christ. And then for those, this one is for those who don't know Christ as your savior, I would say that there's no day like today. I mean, think about it. At a certain point in time when the fullness of time had come, God determined, predetermined the date and appointed it when the son would come. And you don't know how much time you have. We could walk out there, we could all get shot. My buddy used to laugh at me because I would always have gruesome things like, you know, you could get shot, you can get stabbed, and I would always say this stuff, but it comes back, you know, but it's true. Or, or thunder could hit us, or we could just have a heart attack. You never know when the time comes. While there is still time, let us make peace with God. And not only do you make peace with God, God becomes your father, and he will save you. Because we were made to be in fellowship with God. We were created to worship. And when you don't worship God, when you don't live according to God's standard and God's law, guess what? You're living against nature. Therefore, you're miserable. And you're looking 
to satisfy that emptiness, but it can't be satisfied by anything contingent, physical, created. It can only be satisfied by God himself. You were made for him. He owns you already anyways, so submit to him and become free. And it is not an invitation. It's a command that God gives us. God doesn't invite us to repent. He commands us to repent because he's given us his son and evidence that he raised him from the dead and he will come back and judge. So there is no time like today. You know, imagine that you're sitting in the ER and you see me face to face and you come in and we do an EKG and you're having tombstones. That's like simple terms to say you're having an active heart attack and you could die any moment if we don't go in there and open up your balloon and take out that clot. That's where we stand every day. Every one of our lives has been appointed to begin to be born and to die. We don't know when the day will come, but God has already said the day will come. And it is closer than we can ever think or imagine. So for those of us who do know Christ, live today as if it is your last day, glorifying God. But for those who don't know Christ, make sure you submit your knee to him and bow the knee and ask him to forgive you of your sins because you don't know if today is your last day and you will be paying for your sins forever. But there is one who came and paid your sins and you could be like somebody on death row who's given a pardon and God pardons you and you're liberated and you're freed. But not only are you made free, you're taken home to be with your heavenly father here and then. And as the great Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in him. God provided the sacrifice once and for all. Jesus is our peace. He is our pardon. He is our God. He is our savior. He is the reason for the season. Let us close.